Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 13 of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Sea Raiders, Part 1. Until the extraordinary affair at Sidmouth, the peculiar species Haplotuthis ferox was known to science only generically, on the strength of a half-digested tentacle obtained near the Azores, and a decaying body pecked by birds and nibbled by fish, found early in 1896 by Mr. Jennings, near Land's End. In no department of zoological science, indeed, are we quite so much in the dark as with regard to the deep-sea cephalopods a mere accident for instance it was that led to the prince of monaco's discovery of nearly a dozen new forms in the summer of eighteen ninety five a discovery in which the before-mentioned tentacle was included it chanced that a cachalot was killed off tercera by some sperm whalers and in its last struggles charged almost to the prince's yacht missed it rolled under and died within twenty yards of his rudder and in its agony it threw up a number of large objects which the prince dimly perceiving they were strange and important was by a happy expedient able to secure before they sank he set his screws in motion and kept them circling in the vortices thus created until a boat could be lowered and these specimens were whole cephalopods and fragments of cephalopods some of gigantic proportions and almost all of them unknown to science it would seem indeed that these large and agile creatures living in the middle depths of the sea must to a large extent for ever remain unknown to us since under water they are too nimble for nets and it is only by such rare unlooked-for accidents that specimens can be obtained in the case of Haplotuthis ferox, for instance, we are still altogether ignorant of its habitat, as ignorant as we are of the breeding ground of the herring, or the sea-ways of the salmon, and zoologists are altogether at a loss to account for its sudden appearance on our coast. Possibly it was the stress of a hunger migration that drove it hither out of the deep, but it will be, perhaps, better to avoid necessarily inconclusive discussion and to proceed at once with our narrative the first human being to set eyes upon a living haplotuthis the first human being to survive that is for there can be little doubt now that the wave of bathing fatalities and boating accidents that travelled along the coast of cornwall and devon in early may was due to this cause was a retired tea-dealer of the name of fison who was stopping at a sidmouth boarding-house it was in the afternoon, and he was walking along the cliff-path between Sidmouth and Ladrum Bay. The cliffs in this direction are very high, but down the red face of them in one place a kind of ladder-staircase has been made. He was near this when his attention was attracted by what at first he thought to be a cluster of birds 
struggling over a fragment of food that caught the sunlight and glistened pinkish-white the tide was right out and this object was not only far below him but remote across a broad waste of rock reefs covered with dark seaweed and interspersed with silvery shining tidal pools and he was moreover dazzled by the brightness of the further water in a minute regarding this again he perceived that his judgment was in fault for over this struggle circled a number of birds jackdaws and gulls for the most part the latter gleaming blindingly when the sunlight smote their wings and they seemed minute in comparison with it and his curiosity was perhaps aroused all the more strongly because of his first insufficient explanations as he had nothing better to do than amuse himself he decided to make this object whatever it was the goal of his afternoon walk instead of ladrum bay conceiving it might perhaps be a great fish of some sort stranded by some chance and flapping about in its distress and so he hurried down the long steep ladder stopping at intervals of thirty feet or so to take breath and scan the mysterious movement at the foot of the cliff he was of course nearer his object than he had been but on the other hand it now came up against the incandescent sky beneath the sun so as to seem dark and indistinct whatever was pinkish of it was now hidden by a skerry of weedy boulders but he perceived that it was made up of seven rounded bodies distinct or connected and that the birds kept up a constant croaking and screaming but seemed afraid to approach it too closely mr fison torn by curiosity began picking his way across the wave-worn rocks and finding the wet seaweed that covered them thickly rendered them extremely slippery he stopped removed his shoes and socks and rolled his trousers above his knees his object was of course merely to avoid stumbling into the rocky pools about him and perhaps he was rather glad as all men are of an excuse to resume even for a moment the sensations of his boyhood at any rate it is to this no doubt that he owes his life he approached his mark with all the assurance which the absolute security of this country against all forms of animal life gives its inhabitants the round bodies moved to and fro but it was only when he surmounted the skerry of boulders i have mentioned that he realized the horrible nature of the discovery it came upon him with some suddenness the rounded bodies fell apart as he came into sight over the ridge and displayed the pinkish object to be the partially devoured body of a human being but whether of a man or woman he was unable to say and the rounded bodies were new and ghastly-looking creatures in shape somewhat resembling an octopus with huge and very long and flexible tentacles coiled copiously on the ground the skin had a glistening texture unpleasant to see like shiny leather the downward bend of the tentacle surrounded mouth the curious excrescence at the bend the tentacles and the large intelligent eyes gave the creatures a grotesque suggestion of a face they were the size of a fair-sized swine about the body and the tentacles seemed to him to be many feet in length there were he thinks seven or eight at least of the creatures twenty yards beyond them amid the surf of the now returning tide two others were emerging from the sea their bodies lay flatly on the rocks 
and their eyes regarded him with evil interest but it does not appear that mr fison was afraid or that he realized that he was in any danger possibly his confidence is to be ascribed to the limpness of their attitudes but he was horrified of course and intensely excited and indignant at such revolting creatures preying upon human flesh he thought they had chanced upon a drowned body he shouted to them with the idea of driving them off and finding they did not budge cast about him picked up a big rounded lump of rock and flung it at one and then slowly uncoiling their tentacles they all began moving towards him creeping at first deliberately and making a soft purring sound to each other in a moment mr fison realized that he was in danger he shouted again threw both his boots and started off with a leap forthwith twenty yards off he stopped and faced about judging them slow and behold the tentacles of their leader were already pouring over the rocky ridge on which he had just been standing at that he shouted again but this time not threatening but a cry of dismay and began jumping striding slipping wading across the uneven expanse between him and the beach the tall red cliffs seemed suddenly at a vast distance and he saw as though they were creatures in another world two minute workmen engaged in the repair of the ladderway and little suspecting the race of life that was beginning below them at one time he could hear the creatures splashing in the pool not a dozen feet behind him and once he slipped and almost fell they chased him to the very foot of the cliffs and desisted only when he had been joined by the workmen at the foot of the ladderway up the cliff all three of the men pelted them with stones for a time and then hurried to the cliff top and along the path towards sidmouth to secure assistance and a boat and to rescue the desecrated body from the clutches of these abominable creatures part two and as if he had not already been in sufficient peril that day mr fison went with the boat to point out the exact spot of his adventure as the tide was down it required a considerable detour to reach the spot and when at last they came off the ladderway the mangled body had disappeared the water was now running in submerging first one slab of slimy rock and then another and the four men in the boat the workmen that is the boatman and mr fison now turned their attention from the bearings offshore to the water beneath the keel at first they could see little below them save a dark jungle of laminaria with an occasional darting fish their minds were set on adventure and they expressed their disappointment freely but presently they saw one of the monsters swimming through the water seaward with a curious rolling motion that suggested to mr fison the spinning roll of a captive balloon almost immediately after the waving streamers of laminaria were extraordinarily perturbed parted for a moment and three of the beasts became darkly visible struggling for what was probably some fragment of the drowned man in a moment the copious olive-green ribbons had poured again over this writhing group at that all four men greatly excited began beating the water with oars and shouting and immediately they saw a tumultuous movement among the weeds they desisted to see more clearly and as soon as the water was smooth as it seemed to them the whole sea bottom among the weeds set with eyes ugly swine cried one of the men 
why there's dozens and forthwith the things began to rise through the water about them mr fison has since described to the writer this startling eruption out of the waving laminaria meadows to him it seemed to occupy a considerable time but it is probable that really it was an affair of a few seconds only for a time nothing but eyes and then he speaks of tentacles streaming out and parting the weed fronds this way and that then these things growing larger until at last the bottom was hidden by their intercoiling forms and the tips of tentacles rose darkly here and there into the air above the swell of the waters one came up boldly to the side of the boat and clinging to this with three of its succoset tentacles threw four others over the gunwale as if with an intention either of oversetting the boat or of clambering into it mr fison at once caught up the boat-hook and jabbing furiously at the soft tentacles forced it to desist he was struck in the back and almost pitched overboard by the boatman who was using his oar to resist a similar attack on the other side of the boat but the tentacles on either side at once relaxed their hold slid out of sight and splashed into the water we'd better get out of this said mr fison who was trembling violently he went to the tiller while the boatman and one of the workmen seated themselves and began rowing the other workman stood up in the fore part of the boat with the boat-hook ready to strike any more tentacles that might appear nothing else seems to have been said mr fison had expressed the common feeling beyond amendment in a hushed scared mood with faces white and drawn they set about escaping from the position into which they had so recklessly blundered but the oars had scarcely dropped into the water before dark tapering serpentine ropes had bound them and were about the rudder and creeping up the sides of the boat with a looping motion came the suckers again the men gripped their oars and pulled but it was like trying to move a boat in a floating raft of weeds help here cried the boatman and mr fison and the second workman rushed to help lug at the oar then the man with the boat-hook his name was yuan or yuen sprang up with a curse and began striking downward over the side as far as he could reach at the bank of tentacles that now clustered along the boat's bottom and at the same time the two rowers stood up to get a better purchase for the recovery of their oars the boatman handed his to mr fison who lugged desperately and meanwhile the boatman opened a big clasp-knife and leaning over the side of the boat began hacking at the spiring arms upon the oar-shaft mr fison staggering with the quivering rocking of the boat his teeth set his breath coming short and the veins starting on his hands as he pulled at his oar suddenly cast his eyes seaward and there not fifty yards off across the long rollers of the incoming tide was a large boat standing in towards them with three women and a little child in it a boatman was rowing and a little man in a pink ribbon straw hat and whites stood in the stern hailing them for a moment of course mr fison thought of help and then he thought of the child he abandoned his oar forthwith threw up his arms in a frantic gesture and screamed to the party in the boat to keep away for god's sake it says much for the modesty and courage of mr fison that he does not seem to be aware that there was any quality of heroism in his action at this juncture the oar he had abandoned was at once drawn under and presently reappeared floating about twenty yards away at the same moment mr fison felt the boat under him lurch violently 
and a hoarse scream a prolonged cry of terror from hill the boatman caused him to forget the party of excursionists altogether he turned and saw hill crouching by the forward rollock his face convulsed with terror and his right arm over the side and drawn tightly down he gave now a succession of short sharp cries oh, 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 oh. mr fison believes that he must have been hacking at the tentacles below the water-line and have been grasped by them but of course it is quite impossible to say now certainly what had happened the boat was heeling over so that the gunwale was within ten inches of the water and both ewan and the other labourer were striking down into the water with oar and boat-hook on either side of hill's arm mr fison instinctively placed himself to counterpoise them then hill who was a burly powerful man made a strenuous effort and rose almost to a standing position he lifted his arm indeed clean out of the water hanging to it was a complicated tangle of brown ropes and the eyes of one of the brutes that had hold of him glaring straight and resolute showed momentarily above the surface the boat heeled more and more and the green-brown water came pouring in a cascade over the side then hill slipped and fell with his ribs across the side and his arm and the mass of tentacles about it splashed back into the water he rolled over his boot kicked mr fison's knee as that gentleman rushed forward to seize him and in another moment fresh tentacles had whipped about his waist and neck and after a brief convulsive struggle in which the boat was nearly capsized hill was lugged overboard the boat righted with a violent jerk that all but sent mr fison over the other side and hid the struggle in the water from his eyes he stood staggering to recover his balance for a moment and as he did so he became aware that the struggle and the inflowing tide had carried them close upon the weedy rocks again not four yards off a table of rock still rose in rhythmic movements above the inwash of the tide in a moment mr fison seized the oar from ewan gave one vigorous stroke then dropping it ran to the bows and leapt he felt his feet slide over the rock and by a frantic effort leapt again towards a further mass he stumbled over this came to his knees and rose again look out cried someone and a large drab body struck him he was knocked flat into a tidal pool by one of the workmen and as he went down he heard smothered choking cries that he believed at the time came from hill then he found himself marvelling at the shrillness and variety of hill's voice someone jumped over him and a curving rush of foamy water poured over him and passed he scrambled to his feet dripping and without looking seaward ran as fast as his terror would let him shoreward before him over the flat space of scattered rocks stumbled the two workmen one a dozen yards in front of the other he looked over his shoulder at last and seeing that he was not pursued faced about he was astonished from the moment of the rising of the cephalopods out of the water he had been acting too swiftly to fully comprehend his actions now it seemed to him as if he had suddenly jumped out of an evil dream for there were the sky cloudless and blazing with the afternoon sun the sea weltering under its pitiless brightness the soft creamy foam of the breaking water and the low long dark ridges of rock the righted boat floated rising and falling gently on the swell about a dozen yards from shore hill and the monsters 
all the stress and tumult of that fierce fight for life had vanished as though they had never been mr fyson's heart was beating violently he was throbbing to the fingertips and his breath came deep there was something missing for some seconds he could not think clearly enough what this might be sun sky sea rocks what was it then he remembered the boatload of excursionists it had vanished he wondered whether he had imagined it he turned and saw the two workmen standing side by side under the projecting masses of the tall pink cliffs he hesitated whether he should make one last attempt to save the man hill his physical excitement seemed to desert him suddenly and leave him aimless and helpless he turned shoreward stumbling and wading towards his two companions he looked back again and there were now two boats floating and the one farthest out at sea pitched clumsily bottom upward part three so it was haplotuthis ferox made its appearance upon the devonshire coast so far this has been its most serious aggression mr fyson's account taken together with the wave of boating and bathing casualties to which i have already alluded and the absence of fish from the cornish coasts that year points clearly to a shoal of these voracious deep-sea monsters prowling slowly along the sub-tidal coastline hunger migration has i know been suggested as the force that drove them hither but for my own part i prefer to believe the alternative theory of hemsley hemsley holds that a pack or shoal of these creatures may have become enamoured of human flesh by the accident of a foundered ship sinking among them and have wandered in search of it out of their accustomed zone first waylaying and following ships and so coming to our shores in the wake of the atlantic traffic but to discuss hemley's cogent and admirably stated arguments would be out of place here it would seem that the appetites of the shoal were satisfied by the catch of eleven people for so far as can be ascertained there were ten people in the second boat and certainly these creatures gave no further signs of their presence off sidmouth that day the coast between seaton and budley salterton was patrolled all that evening and night by four preventive service boats the men in which were armed with harpoons and cutlasses and as the evening advanced a number of more or less similarly equipped expeditions organized by private individuals joined them mr fyson took no part in any of these expeditions about midnight excited hails were heard from a boat about a couple of miles out at sea to the southeast of sidmouth and a lantern was seen waving in a strange manner to and fro and up and down the nearer boats at once hurried towards the alarm the venturesome occupants of the boat a seaman a curate and two schoolboys had actually seen the monsters passing under their boat the creatures it seems like most deep-sea organisms were phosphorescent and they had been floating five fathoms deep or so like creatures of moonshine through the blackness of the water their tentacles retracted and as if asleep rolling over and over and moving slowly in a wedge-like formation towards the southeast these people told their story in gesticulated fragments as 
first one boat drew alongside and then another at last there was a little fleet of eight or nine boats collected together and from them a tumult like the chatter of a market-place rose into the stillness of the night there was little or no disposition to pursue the shoal the people had neither weapons nor experience for such a dubious chase and presently even with a certain relief it may be the boats turned shoreward and now to tell what is perhaps the most astonishing fact in this whole astonishing raid we have not the slightest knowledge of the subsequent movements of the shoal although the whole southwest coast was now alert for it but it may perhaps be significant that a cachalot was stranded off sark on june the third two weeks and three days after this sidmouth affair a living haplotuthis came ashore on calais sands it was alive because several witnesses saw its tentacles moving in a convulsive way but it is probable that it was dying a gentleman named pouchet obtained a rifle and shot it that was the last appearance of a living haplotuthis no others were seen on the french coast on the fifteenth of june a dead carcass almost complete was washed ashore near torquay and a few days later a boat from the marine biological station engaged in dredging off plymouth picked up a rotting specimen slashed deeply with a cutlass wound how the former had come by its death it is impossible to say and on the last day of june mr egbert kane an artist bathing near new lynn threw up his arms shrieked and was drawn under a friend bathing with him made no attempt to save him but swam at once for the shore this is the last fact to tell of this extraordinary raid from the deeper sea whether it is really the last of these horrible creatures it is as yet premature to say but it is believed and certainly it is to be hoped that they have returned now and returned for good to the sunless depths of the middle seas out of which they have so strangely and so mysteriously arisen end of section 13section 14 of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley the obliterated man i was you shall hear immediately why i am not now egbert craddock cummins the name remains i am still heaven help me dramatic critic to the fiery cross what i shall be in a little while i do not know i write in great trouble and confusion of mind i will do what i can to make myself clear in the face of terrible difficulties you must bear with me a little when a man is rapidly losing his own identity he naturally finds a difficulty in expressing himself i will make it perfectly plain in a minute when once i get my grip upon the story let me see where am i i wish i knew ah i have it dead self egbert craddock cummins in the past i should have disliked writing anything quite so full of i as this story must be it is full of eyes before and behind like the beast in revelation the one with the head like a calf i am afraid but my tastes have changed since i became a dramatic critic and studied the masters 
GAS, GBS, GRS, and the others. Everything has changed since then. At least the story is about myself, so that there is some excuse for me. And it is really not egotism, because, as I say, since those days, my identity has undergone an entire alteration. That passed. I was, in those days, rather a nice fellow, rather shy. Taste for grey in my clothes, weedy little moustache, face interesting, slight stutter, which I had caught in my early life from a schoolfellow, engaged to a very nice girl named Delia, fairly knew she was, cigarettes, liked me because I was human and original, considered I was like lamb, on the strength of the stutter, I believe, father an eminent authority on postage stamps, she read a great deal in the British Museum. A perfect pairing ground for literary people, that British Museum. You should read George Egerton, and Justin Huntley McCarthy, and Gissing, and the rest of them. We loved, in our intellectual way, and shared the brightest hopes. All gone now. And her father liked me because I seemed honestly eager to hear about stamps. She had no mother. Indeed, I had the happiest prospects a young man could have. I never went to theatres in those days. My aunt Charlotte, before she died, had told me not to. Then Barnaby, the editor of the Fiery Cross, made me, in spite of my spasmodic efforts to escape, dramatic critic. He is a fine, healthy man, Barnaby, with an enormous head of frizzy black hair and a convincing manner. And he caught me on the staircase going to see Wembley. He had been dining and was more than usually buoyant. Hello, Cummins, he said. The very man I want. He caught me by the shoulder, or the collar or something, ran me up the little passage, and flung me over the waste-paper basket into the armchair in his office. Pray be seated, he said as he did so. Then he ran across the room and came back with some pink and yellow tickets, and pushed them into my hand. Opera comique, he said. Thursday, Friday the Surrey, Saturday the Frivolity. That's all, I think. But I began. Glad you're free, he said, snatching some proofs off the desk and beginning to read. "'I don't quite understand,' I said. "'Eh?' he said, at the top of his voice, as though he thought I had gone, and was startled at my remark. "'Do you want me to criticise these plays?' "'Do something with them. Did you think it was a treat?' "'But I can't.' "'Did you call me a fool?' "'Well, I've never been to a theatre in my life.' "'Virgin soil.' "'But I don't know anything about it, you know.' "'That's just it. New view. No habits. No clichés in stock.' Ours is a live paper, not a bag of tricks. None of your clockwork professional journalism in this office, and I can rely on your integrity. But I've conscientious scruples. He caught me up suddenly and put me outside his door. Go and talk to Wembley about that, he said. He'll explain. As I stood perplexed, he opened the door again and said, I forgot this, thrust a fourth ticket into my hand. It was for that night in twenty minutes' time and slammed the door upon me. His expression was quite calm, but I caught his eye. I hate arguments. I decided that I would take his hint and become, to my own destruction, a dramatic critic. I walked slowly down the passage to Wembley. That Barnaby has a remarkable persuasive way. He has made few suggestions during our very pleasant intercourse of four years that he has not ultimately won me round to adopting. It may be, of course, that I am of a yielding disposition, 
certainly i am too apt to take my colour from my circumstances it is indeed to my unfortunate susceptibility to vivid impressions that all my misfortunes are due i have already alluded to the slight stammer i had acquired from a schoolfellow in my youth however this is a digression i went home in a cab to dress i will not trouble the reader with my thoughts about the first night audience strange assembly as it is those i reserve for my memoirs nor the humiliating story of how i got lost during the entr'acte in a lot of red plush passages and saw the third act from the gallery the only point upon which i wish to lay stress was the remarkable effect of the acting upon me you must remember i had lived a quiet and retired life and had never been to the theatre before and that i am extremely sensitive to vivid impressions at the risk of repetition i must insist upon these points the first effect was a profound amazement not untinctured by alarm the phenomenal unnaturalness of acting is a thing discounted in the minds of most people by early visits to the theatre they get used to the fantastic gestures the flamboyant emotions the weird mouthings melodious snortings agonizing yelps lip-gnawings glaring horrors and other emotional symbolism of the stage it becomes at last a mere deaf and dumb language to them which they read intelligently pari passu with the hearing of the dialogue but all this was new to me the thing was called a modern comedy the people were supposed to be english and were dressed like fashionable americans of the current epoch and i fell into the natural error of supposing that the actors were trying to represent human beings i looked round on my first night audience with a kind of wonder discovered as all new dramatic critics do that it rested with me to reform the drama and after a supper choked with emotion went off to the office to write a column piebald with new paragraphs as all my stuff is it fills out so and purple with indignation barnaby was delighted but i could not sleep that night i dreamt of actors actors glaring actors smiting their chests actors flinging out a handful of extended fingers actors smiling bitterly laughing despairingly falling hopelessly dying idiotically i got up at eleven with a slight headache read my notice in the fiery cross breakfasted and went back to my room to shave it's my habit to do so then an odd thing happened i could not find my razor suddenly it occurred to me that i had not unpacked it the day before ah said i in front of the looking-glass then hullo quite involuntarily when i had thought of my portmanteau i had flung up the left arm fingers fully extended and clutched at my diaphragm with my right hand i am an acutely self-conscious man at all times the gesture struck me as absolutely novel for me i repeated it for my own satisfaction odd then rather puzzled i turned to my portmanteau after shaving my mind reverted to the acting i had seen 
and i entertained myself before the cheval glass with some imitations of jaffery's more exaggerated gestures really one might think it a disease i said stage walkitis there's many a truth spoken in jest then if i remember rightly i went off to see wembley and afterwards lunched at the british museum with delia we actually spoke about our prospects in the light of my new appointment but that appointment was the beginning of my downfall from that day i necessarily became a persistent theatre-goer and almost insensibly i began to change the next thing i noticed after the gesture about the razor was to catch myself bowing ineffably when i met delia and stooping in an old-fashioned courtly way over her hand directly i caught myself i straightened myself up and became very uncomfortable i remember she looked at me curiously then in the office i found myself doing nervous business fingers on teeth when barnaby asked me a question i could not very well answer then in some trifling difference with delia i clasped my hand to my brow and i pranced through my social transactions at times singularly like an actor i tried not to no one could be more keenly alive to the arrant absurdity of the histrionic bearing and i did it began to dawn on me what it all meant the acting i saw was too much for my delicately strung nervous system i have always i know been too amenable to the suggestions of my circumstances night after night of concentrated attention to the conventional attitudes and intonation of the english stage was gradually affecting my speech and carriage i was giving way to the infection of sympathetic imitation night after night my plastic nervous system took the print of some new amazing gesture some new emotional exaggeration and retained it a kind of theatrical veneer threatened to plate over and obliterate my private individuality altogether i saw myself in a kind of vision sitting by myself one night my new self seemed to me to glide posing and gesticulating across the room he clutched his throat he opened his fingers he opened his legs in walking like a high-class marionette he went from attitude to attitude he might have been clockwork directly after this i made an ineffectual attempt to resign my theatrical work but barnaby persisted in talking about the polywiddle divorce all the time i was with him and i could get no opportunity of saying what i wished and then delia's manner began to change towards me the ease of our intercourse vanished i felt she was learning to dislike me i grinned and capered and scowled and posed at her in a thousand ways and knew with what a voiceless agony that i did it all the time i tried to resign again and barnaby talked about x and z and y in the new review and gave me a strong cigar to smoke and so routed me and then i walked up the assyrian gallery in the manner of irving to meet delia and so precipitated the crisis ah dear i said with more sprightliness and emotion in my voice than had ever been in all my life before i became to my own undoing a dramatic critic 
She held out her hand rather coldly, scrutinizing my face as she did so. I prepared, with a new one grace, to walk by her side. Egbert, she said, standing still, and thought. Then she looked at me. I said nothing. I felt what was coming. I tried to be the old Egbert Craddock Cummins of shambling gait and stammering sincerity, whom she loved. But I felt, even as I did so, that I was a new thing, a thing of surging emotions and mysterious fixity, like no human being that ever lived, except upon the stage. Egbert, she said, you are not yourself. Ah! involuntarily i clutched my diaphragm and averted my head as is the way with them there she said what do you mean i said whispering in vocal italics you know how they do it turning on her perplexity on face right hand down left on brow i knew quite well what she meant i knew quite well the dramatic unreality of my behaviour but i struggled against it in vain what do you mean i said and in a kind of hoarse whisper i don't understand she really looked as though she disliked me what do you keep on posing for she said i don't like it you didn't used to didn't used to i said slowly repeating this twice i glared up and down the gallery with short sharp glances we are alone i said swiftly listen i poked my forefinger towards her and glared at her i am under a curse i saw her hand tighten upon her sunshade you are under some bad influence or other said delia you should give it up i never knew any one change as you have done delia i said lapsing into the pathetic pity me oh delia pity me she eyed me critically why you keep playing the fool like this i don't know she said anyhow i really cannot go about with a man who behaves as you do you made us both ridiculous on wednesday frankly i dislike you as you are now i met you here to tell you so as it's about the only place where we can be sure of being alone together delia said i with intensity knuckles of clenched hands white you don't mean i do said delia a woman's lot is sad enough at the best of times but with you i clapped my hand on my brow so good-bye said delia without emotion oh delia i said not this good-bye mr cummins she said by a violent effort i controlled myself and touched her hand i tried to say some word of explanation to her she looked into my working face and winced i must do it she said hopelessly then she turned from me and began walking rapidly down the gallery heavens how the human agony cried within me i loved delia but nothing found expression i was already too deeply crusted with my acquired self good-bye i said at last watching her retreating figure how i hated myself for doing it 
after she had vanished i repeated in a dreamy way good-bye looking hopelessly round me then with a kind of heart-broken cry i shook my clenched fists in the air staggered to the pedestal of a winged figure buried my face in my arms and made my shoulders heave something within me said ass as i did so i had the greatest difficulty in persuading the museum policeman who was attracted by my cry of agony that i was not intoxicated but merely suffering from a transient indisposition but even this great sorrow has not availed to save me from my fate i see it every one sees it i grow more theatrical every day and no one could be more painfully aware of the pungent silliness of theatrical ways the quiet nervous but pleasing e c cummins vanishes i cannot save him i am driven like a dead leaf before the winds of march my tailor even enters into the spirit of my disorder he has a peculiar sense of what is fitting i tried to get a dull grey suit from him this spring and he foisted a brilliant blue upon me and i see he has put braid down the sides of my new dress trousers my hairdresser insists upon giving me a wave i am beginning to associate with actors i detest them but it is only in their company that i can feel i am not glaringly conspicuous their talk infects me i notice a growing tendency to dramatic brevity to dashes and pauses in my style to a punctuation of bows and attitudes barnaby has remarked it too i offended wembley by calling him dear boy yesterday i dread the end but i cannot escape from it the fact is i am being obliterated living a grey retired life all my youth i came to the theatre a delicate sketch of a man a thing of tints and faint lines their gorgeous colouring has effaced me altogether people forget how much mode of expression method of movement are a matter of contagion i have heard of stage-struck people before and thought it a figure of speech i spoke of it jestingly as a disease it is no jest it is a disease and i have got it badly deep down within me i protest against the wrong done to my personality unavailingly for three hours or more a week i have to go and concentrate my attention on some fresh play and the suggestions of the drama strengthen their awful hold upon me my manners grow so flamboyant my passions so professional that i doubt as i said at the outset whether it is really myself that behaves in such a manner i feel merely the core to this dramatic casing that grows thicker and presses upon me me and mine i feel like king john's abbot in his cope of lead i doubt indeed whether i should not abandon the struggle altogether leave this sad world of ordinary life for which i am so ill-fitted abandon the name of cummins for some professional pseudonym complete my self-effacement and 
a thing of tricks and tatters of posing and pretence go upon the stage it seems my only resort to hold the mirror up to nature for in the ordinary life i will confess no one now seems to regard me as both sane and sober only upon the stage i feel convinced will people take me seriously that will be the end of it i know that will be the end of it and yet i will frankly confess all that marks off your actor from your common man i detest i am still largely of my aunt charlotte's opinion that play-acting is unworthy of a pure-minded man's attention much more participation even now i would resign my dramatic criticism and try a rest only i can't get hold of barnaby letters of resignation he never notices he says it is against the etiquette of journalism to write to your editor and when i go to see him he gives me another big cigar and some strong whisky and soda and then something always turns up to prevent my explanation End of section 14section 15 of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley the platner story whether the story of gottfried platner is to be credited or not is a pretty question in the value of evidence on the one hand we have seven witnesses to be perfectly exact we have six and a half pairs of eyes and one undeniable fact and on the other we have what is it prejudice common sense the inertia of opinion never were there seven more honest seeming witnesses never was there a more undeniable fact than the inversion of gottfried platner's anatomical structure and never was there a more preposterous story than the one they have to tell the most preposterous part of the story is the worthy gottfried's contribution for i count him as one of the seven heaven forbid that i should be led into giving countenance to superstition by a passion for impartiality and so come to share the fate of eusapia's patrons frankly i believe there is something crooked about this business of gottfried platner but what that crooked factor is i will admit as frankly i do not know i have been surprised at the credit accorded to the story in the most unexpected and authoritative quarters the fairest way to the reader however will be for me to tell it without further comment gottfried platner is in spite of his name a free-born englishman his father was an alsatian who came to england in the sixties married a respectable english girl of unexceptionable antecedents and died after a wholesome and uneventful life devoted i understand chiefly to the laying of parquet flooring in eighteen eighty seven gottfried's age is seven and twenty he is by virtue of his heritage of three languages modern languages master in a small private school in the south of england to the casual observer he is singularly like any other modern languages master in any other small private school his costume is neither very costly nor very fashionable 
nor very fashionable but on the other hand it is not markedly cheap or shabby his complexion like his height and his bearing is inconspicuous you would notice perhaps that like the majority of people his face was not absolutely symmetrical his right eye a little larger than the left and his jaw a trifle heavier on the right side if you as an ordinary careless person were to bare his chest and feel his heart beating you would probably find it quite like the heart of anyone else but here you and the trained observer would part company if you found his heart quite ordinary the trained observer would find it quite otherwise and once the thing was pointed out to you you too would perceive the peculiarity easily enough it is that gottfried's heart beats on the right side of his body now that is not the only singularity of gottfried's structure although it is the only one that would appeal to the untrained mind careful sounding of gottfried's internal arrangements by a well-known surgeon seems to point to the fact that all the other unsymmetrical parts of his body are similarly misplaced the right lobe of his liver is on the left side the left on his right while his lungs too are similarly contraposed what is still more singular unless gottfried is a consummate actor we must believe that his right hand has recently become his left since the occurrences we are about to consider as impartially as possible he has found the utmost difficulty in writing except from right to left across the paper with his left hand he cannot throw with his right hand he is perplexed at meal-times between knife and fork and his ideas of the rule of the road he is a cyclist are still a dangerous confusion and there is not a scrap of evidence to show that before these occurrences gottfried was at all left-handed there is yet another wonderful fact in this preposterous business gottfried produces three photographs of himself you have him at the age of five or six thrusting fat legs at you from under a plaid frock and scowling in that photograph his left eye is a little larger than his right and his jaw is a trifle heavier on the left side this is the reverse of his present living condition the photograph of gottfried at fourteen seems to contradict these facts but that is because it is one of those cheap gem photographs that were then in vogue taken direct upon metal and therefore reversing things just as a looking-glass would the third photograph represents him at one and twenty and confirms the record of the others there seems here evidence of the strongest confirmatory character that gottfried has exchanged his left side for his right yet how a human being can be so changed short of a fantastic and pointless miracle it is exceedingly hard to suggest in one way of course these facts might be explicable on the supposition that platner has undertaken an elaborate mystification on the strength of his heart's displacement photographs may be faked and left-handedness imitated but the character of the man does not lend itself to any such theory he is quiet practical unobtrusive and thoroughly sane from the nordau standpoint he likes beer and smokes moderately takes walking exercise daily and has a healthily high estimate of the value of his teaching 
he has a good but untrained tenor voice and takes a pleasure in singing airs of a popular and cheerful character he is fond but not morbidly fond of reading chiefly fiction pervaded with a vaguely pious optimism sleeps well and rarely dreams he is in fact the very last person to evolve a fantastic fable indeed so far from forcing this story upon the world he has been singularly reticent on the matter he meets inquirers with a certain engaging bashfulness is almost the word that disarms the most suspicious he seems genuinely ashamed that anything so unusual has occurred to him it is to be regretted that platner's aversion to the idea of post-mortem dissection may postpone perhaps for ever the positive proof that his entire body has had its left and right sides transposed upon that fact mainly the credibility of his story hangs there is no way of taking a man and moving him about in space as ordinary people understand space that will result in our changing his sides whatever you do his right is still his right his left his left you can do that with a perfectly thin and flat thing of course if you were to cut a figure out of paper any figure with a right and left side you could change its sides simply by lifting it up and turning it over but with a solid it is different mathematical theorists tell us that the only way in which the right and left sides of a solid body can be changed is by taking that body clean out of space as we know it taking it out of ordinary existence that is and turning it somewhere outside space this is a little abstruse no doubt but anyone with any knowledge of mathematical theory will assure the reader of its truth to put the thing in technical language the curious inversion of platner's right and left sides is proof that he has moved out of our space into what is called the fourth dimension and that he has returned again to our world unless we choose to consider ourselves the victims of an elaborate and motiveless fabrication we are almost bound to believe that this has occurred so much for the tangible facts we come now to the account of the phenomena that attended his temporary disappearance from the world it appears that in the sussexville proprietary school platner not only discharged the duties of modern languages master but also taught chemistry commercial geography bookkeeping shorthand drawing and any other additional subject to which the changing fancies of the boy's parents might direct attention he knew little or nothing of these various subjects but in secondary as distinguished from board or elementary schools knowledge in the teacher is very properly by no means so necessary as high moral character and gentlemanly tone in chemistry he was particularly deficient knowing he says nothing beyond the three gases whatever the three gases may be as however his pupils began by knowing nothing and derived all their information from him this caused him or any one but little inconvenience for several terms then a little boy named wibble joined the school who had been educated it seems by some mischievous relative into an inquiring habit of mind 
this little boy followed platner's lessons with marked and sustained interest and in order to exhibit his zeal on the subject brought at various times substances for platner to analyse platner flattered by this evidence of his power of awakening interest and trusting to the boy's ignorance analysed these and even made general statements as to their composition indeed he was so far stimulated by his pupil as to obtain a work upon analytical chemistry and study it during his supervision of the evening's preparation he was surprised to find chemistry quite an interesting subject so far the story is absolutely commonplace but now the greenish powder comes upon the scene the source of that greenish powder seems unfortunately lost master wibble tells a tortuous story of finding it done up in a packet in a disused lime-kiln near the downs it would have been an excellent thing for platner and possibly for master wibble's family if a match could have been applied to that powder there and then the young gentleman certainly did not bring it to school in a packet but in a common eight-ounce graduated medicine bottle plugged with masticated newspaper he gave it to platner at the end of the afternoon school four boys had been detained after school prayers in order to complete some neglected tasks and platner was supervising these in the small classroom in which the chemical teaching was conducted the appliances for the practical teaching of chemistry in the sussexville proprietary school as in most small schools in this country are characterized by a severe simplicity they are kept in a small cupboard standing in a recess and having about the same capacity as a common travelling trunk platner being bored with his passive superintendence seems to have welcomed the intervention of wibble with his green powder as an agreeable diversion and unlocking this cupboard proceeded at once with his analytical experiments wibble sat luckily for himself at a safe distance regarding him the four malefactors feigning a profound absorption in their work watched him furtively with the keenest interest for even within the limits of the three gases platner's practical chemistry was i understand temerarious they are practically unanimous in their account of platner's proceedings he poured a little of the green powder into a test tube and tried the substance with water hydrochloric acid nitric acid and sulphuric acid in succession getting no result he emptied out a little heap nearly half the bottleful in fact upon a slate and tried a match he held the medicine bottle in his left hand the stuff began to smoke and melt and then exploded with deafening violence and a blinding flash the five boys seeing the flash and being prepared for catastrophes ducked below their desks and were none of them seriously hurt the window was blown out into the playground and the blackboard on its easel was upset the slate was smashed to atoms some plaster fell from the ceiling no other damage was done to the school edifice or appliances and the boys at first seeing nothing of platner fancied he was knocked down and lying out of their sight below the desks they jumped out of their places to go to his assistance and were amazed to find the space empty being still confused by the sudden violence of the report they hurried to the open door 
under the impression that he must have been hurt and have rushed out of the room but carson the foremost nearly collided in the doorway with the principal mr lidget mr lidget is a corpulent excitable man with one eye the boys describe him as stumbling into the room mouthing some of those tempered expletives irritable schoolmasters accustom themselves to use lest worse befall wretched mum chancer he said where's mr platner the boys are agreed on the very words wobbler snivelling puppy and mum chancer are it seems among the ordinary small change of mr lidget's scholastic commerce where's mr platner that was a question that was to be repeated many times in the next few days it really seemed as though that frantic hyperbole blown to atoms had for once realized itself there was not a visible particle of platner to be seen not a drop of blood nor a stitch of clothing to be found apparently he had been blown clean out of existence and left not a rack behind not so much as would cover a sixpenny piece to quote a proverbial expression the evidence of his absolute disappearance as a consequence of that explosion is indubitable it is not necessary to enlarge here upon the commotion excited in the sussexville proprietary school and in sussexville and elsewhere by this event it is quite possible indeed that some of the readers of these pages may recall the hearing of some remote and dying version of that excitement during the last summer holidays Lidget, it would seem did everything in his power to suppress and minimize the story he instituted a penalty of twenty-five lines for any mention of platner's name among the boys and stated in the schoolroom that he was clearly aware of his assistant's whereabouts he was afraid he explains that the possibility of an explosion happening in spite of the elaborate precautions taken to minimize the practical teaching of chemistry might injure the reputation of the school and so might any mysterious quality in platner's departure indeed he did everything in his power to make the occurrence seem as ordinary as possible in particular he cross-examined the five eyewitnesses of the occurrence so searchingly that they began to doubt the plain evidence of their senses but in spite of these efforts the tale in a magnified and distorted state made a nine days wonder in the district and several parents withdrew their sons on colourable pretexts not the least remarkable point in the matter is the fact that a large number of people in the neighbourhood dreamed singularly vivid dreams of platner during the period of excitement before his return and that these dreams had a curious uniformity in almost all of them platner was seen sometimes singly sometimes in company wandering about through a coruscating iridescence in all cases his face was pale and distressed and in some he gesticulated towards the dreamer one or two of the boys evidently under the influence of nightmare fancied that platner approached them with remarkable swiftness and seemed to look closely into their very eyes others fled with platner from the pursuit of vague and extraordinary creatures of a globular shape 
but all these fancies were forgotten in inquiries and speculations when on the wednesday next but one after the monday of the explosion platner returned the circumstances of his return were as singular as those of his departure so far as mr lidget's somewhat choleric outline can be filled in from platner's hesitating statements it would appear that on wednesday evening towards the hour of sunset the former gentleman having dismissed evening preparation was engaged in his garden picking and eating strawberries a fruit of which he is inordinately fond it is a large old-fashioned garden secured from observation fortunately by a high and ivy-covered red brick wall just as he was stooping over a particularly prolific plant there was a flash in the air and a heavy thud and before he could look round some heavy body struck him violently from behind he was pitched forward crushing the strawberries he held in his hand and that so roughly that his silk hat mr lidget adheres to the older ideas of scholastic costume was driven violently down upon his forehead and almost over one eye this heavy missile which slid over him sideways and collapsed into a sitting position among the strawberry plants proved to be our long-lost mr gottfried platner in an extremely dishevelled condition he was collarless and hatless his linen was dirty and there was blood upon his hands mr lidget was so indignant and surprised that he remained on all fours and with his hat jammed down on his eye while he expostulated vehemently with platner for his disrespectful and unaccountable conduct this scarcely idyllic scene completes what i may call the exterior version of the platner story its exoteric aspect it is quite unnecessary to enter here into all the details of his dismissal by mr lidget such details with the full names and dates and references will be found in the larger report of these occurrences that was laid before the society for the investigation of abnormal phenomena the singular transposition of platner's right and left sides was scarcely observed for the first day or so and then first in connection with his disposition to write from right to left across the blackboard he concealed rather than ostended this a curious confirmatory circumstance as he considered it would unfavourably affect his prospects in a new situation the displacement of his heart was discovered some months after when he was having a tooth extracted under anaesthetics he then very unwillingly allowed a cursory surgical examination to be made of himself with a view to a brief account in the journal of anatomy that exhausts the statement of the material facts and we may now go on to consider platner's account of the matter but first let us clearly differentiate between the preceding portion of this story and what is to follow all i have told thus far is established by such evidence as even a criminal lawyer would approve every one of the witnesses is still alive the reader if he have the leisure may hunt the lads out to-morrow or even brave the terrors of the redoubtable lidget and cross-examine and trap and test to his heart's content gottfried platner himself and his twisted heart and his three photographs are producible it may be taken as proved that he did disappear for nine days as the consequence of an explosion 
that he returned almost as violently under circumstances in their nature annoying to mr lidget whatever the details of those circumstances may be and that he returned inverted just as a reflection returns from a mirror from the last fact as i have already stated it follows almost inevitably that platner during those nine days must have been in some state of existence altogether out of space the evidence to these statements is indeed far stronger than that upon which most murderers are hanged but for his own particular account of where he had been with its confused explanations and well-nigh self-contradictory details we have only mr gottfried platner's word i do not wish to discredit that but i must point out what so many writers upon obscure psychic phenomena fail to do that we are passing here from the practically undeniable to that kind of matter which any reasonable man is entitled to believe or reject as he thinks proper the previous statements render it plausible its discordance with common experience tilts it towards the incredible i would prefer not to sway the beam of the reader's judgment either way but simply to tell the story as platner told it to me he gave me his narrative i may state at my house at chislehurst and so soon as he had left me that evening i went into my study and wrote down everything as i remembered it subsequently he was good enough to read over a typewritten copy so that its substantial correctness is undeniable he states that at the moment of the explosion he distinctly thought he was killed he felt lifted off his feet and driven forcibly backward it is a curious fact for psychologists that he thought clearly during his backward flight and wondered whether he should hit the chemistry cupboard or the blackboard easel his heels struck ground and he staggered and fell heavily into a sitting position on something soft and firm for a moment the concussion stunned him he became aware at once of a vivid scent of singed hair and he seemed to hear the voice of lidget asking for him you will understand that for a time his mind was greatly confused at first he was under the impression that he was still standing in the classroom he perceived quite distinctly the surprise of the boys and the entry of mr lidget he is quite positive upon that score he did not hear their remarks but that he ascribed to the deafening effect of the experiment things about him seemed curiously dark and faint but his mind explained that on the obvious but mistaken idea that the explosion had engendered a huge volume of dark smoke through the dimness the figures of lidget and the boys moved as faint and silent as ghosts platner's face still tingled with the stinging heat of the flash he was he says all muddled his first definite thoughts seemed to have been of his personal safety he thought he was perhaps blinded and deafened he felt his limbs and face in a gingerly manner then his perceptions grew clearer and he was astonished to miss the old familiar desks and other schoolroom furniture about him only dim uncertain grey shapes stood in the place of these then came a thing that made him shout aloud and awoke his stunned faculties to instant activity two of the boys gesticulating walked one after the other clean through him 
neither manifested the slightest consciousness of his presence it is difficult to imagine the sensation he felt they came against him he says with no more force than a wisp of mist platner's first thought after that was that he was dead having been brought up with thoroughly sound views in these matters however he was a little surprised to find his body still about him his second conclusion was that he was not dead but that the others were that the explosion had destroyed the sussexville proprietary school and every soul in it except himself but that too was scarcely satisfactory he was thrown back upon astonished observation everything about him was profoundly dark at first it seemed to have an altogether ebony blackness overhead was a black firmament the only touch of light in the scene was a faint greenish glow at the edge of the sky in one direction which threw into prominence a horizon of undulating black hills this i say was his impression at first as his eye grew accustomed to the darkness he began to distinguish a faint quality of differentiating greenish colour in the circumambient night against this background the furniture and occupants of the classroom it seems stood out like phosphorescent spectres faint and impalpable he extended his hand and thrust it without an effort through the wall of the room by the fireplace he describes himself as making a strenuous effort to attract attention he shouted to lidget and tried to seize the boys as they went to and fro he only desisted from these attempts when mrs lidget whom he as an assistant master naturally disliked entered the room he says the sensation of being in the world and yet not a part of it was an extraordinarily disagreeable one he compared his feelings not inaptly to those of a cat watching a mouse through a window whenever he made a motion to communicate with the dim familiar world about him he found an invisible incomprehensible barrier preventing intercourse he then turned his attention to his solid environment he found the medicine bottle still unbroken in his hand with the remainder of the green powder therein he put this in his pocket and began to feel about him apparently he was sitting on a boulder of rock covered with a velvety moss the dark country about him he was unable to see the faint misty picture of the schoolroom blotting it out but he had a feeling due perhaps to a cold wind that he was near the crest of a hill and that a steep valley fell away beneath his feet the green glow along the edge of the sky seemed to be growing in extent and intensity he stood up rubbing his eyes it would seem that he made a few steps going steeply downhill and then stumbled nearly fell and sat down again upon a jagged mass of rock to watch the dawn he became aware that the world about him was absolutely silent it was as still as it was dark and though there was a cold wind blowing up the hill face the rustle of grass the soughing of the boughs that should have accompanied it were absent he could hear therefore if he could not see that the hillside upon which he stood was rocky and desolate the green grew brighter every moment and as it did so a faint transparent blood-red mingled with but did not mitigate the blackness of the sky overhead 
and the rocky desolations about him. Having a regard to what follows, I am inclined to think that that redness may have been an optical effect due to contrast. Something black fluttered momentarily against the livid yellow-green of the lower sky, and then the thin and penetrating voice of a bell rose out of the black gulf below him. An oppressive expectation grew with the growing light. It is probable that an hour or more elapsed while he sat there, the strange green light growing brighter every moment and spreading slowly in flamboyant fingers upward towards the zenith. As it grew, the spectral vision of our world became relatively, or absolutely, fainter, probably both, for the time must have been about that of our earthly sunset. So far as his vision of our world went, Platner, by his few steps downhill, had passed through the floor of the classroom, and was now, it seemed, sitting in mid-air in the larger schoolroom downstairs. He saw the boarders distinctly, but much more faintly than he had seen Lidget. They were preparing their evening tasks, and he noticed with interest that several were cheating with their Euclid riders by means of a crib, a compilation whose existence he had hitherto never suspected. As the time passed, they faded steadily, as steadily as the light of the green dawn increased. Looking down into the valley, he saw that the light had crept far down its rocky sides, and that the profound blackness of the abyss was now broken by a minute green glow, like the light of a glow-worm, and almost immediately the limb of a huge heavenly body of blazing green rose over the basaltic undulations of the distant hills, and the monstrous hill-masses about him came out gaunt and desolate in green light and deep ruddy black shadows. He became aware of a vast number of ball-shaped objects drifting as thistledown drifts over the high ground. There were none of these nearer to him than the opposite side of the gorge. The bell below twanged quicker and quicker, with something like impatient insistence, and several lights moved hither and thither. The boys at work at their desks were now almost imperceptibly faint. This extinction of our world, when the green sun of this other universe rose, is a curious point upon which Platner insists. During the other world night it is difficult to move about on account of the vividness with which the things of this world are visible. It becomes a riddle to explain why, if this is the case, we in this world catch no glimpse of the other world. It is due, perhaps, to the comparatively vivid illumination of this world of ours. Platner describes the midday of the other world at its brightest as not being nearly so bright as this world at full moon while its night is profoundly black. Consequently, the amount of light, even in an ordinary dark room, is sufficient to render the things of the other world invisible, on the same principle that faint phosphorescence is only visible in the profoundest darkness. I have tried, since he told me his story, to see something of the other world by sitting for a long space in a photographer's dark room at night. I have certainly seen, indistinctly, the form of greenish slopes and rocks, 
but only, I must admit, very indistinctly indeed. The reader may possibly be more successful. Platner tells me that, since his return, he has dreamt and seen and recognized places in the other world, but this is probably due to his memory of these scenes. It seems quite possible that people with unusually keen eyesight may occasionally catch a glimpse of this strange other world about us. However, this is a digression. As the green sun rose, a long street of black buildings became perceptible, though only darkly and indistinctly, in the gorge, and after some hesitation Platner began to clamber down the precipitous descent towards them. The descent was long and exceedingly tedious, being so not only by the extraordinary steepness, but also by reason of the looseness of the boulders with which the whole face of the hill was strewn. The noise of his descent, now and then his heels struck fire from the rocks, seemed now the only sound in the universe, for the beating of the bell had ceased. As he drew nearer, he perceived that the various edifices had a singular resemblance to tombs and mausoleums and monuments, saving only that they were all uniformly black, instead of being white, as most sepulchres are. And then he saw, crowding out of the largest building, very much as people disperse from church, a number of pallid, rounded, pale green figures. These dispersed in several directions about the broad street of the place, some going through side alleys and reappearing upon the steepness of the hill, others entering some of the small black buildings which lined the way. At the sight of these things, drifting up towards him, Platner stopped, staring. They were not walking, they were indeed limbless, and they had the appearance of human heads beneath which a tadpole-like body swung. He was too astonished at their strangeness, too full indeed of strangeness, to be seriously alarmed by them. They drove towards him, in front of the chill wind that was blowing uphill, much as soap-bubbles drive before a draught, and as he looked at the nearest of those approaching, he saw it was, indeed, a human head, albeit with singularly large eyes, and wearing such an expression of distress and anguish as he had never seen before upon mortal countenance. He was surprised to find that it did not turn to regard him, but seemed to be watching and following some unseen moving thing. For a moment he was puzzled, and then it occurred to him that this creature was watching with its enormous eyes something that was happening in the world he had just left. Nearer it came, and nearer, and he was too astonished to cry out. It made a very faint, fretting sound as it came close to him, then it struck his face with a gentle pat. Its touch was very cold, and drove past him and upward towards the crest of the hill. An extraordinary conviction flashed across Platner's mind that this head had a strong likeness to Lidget. Then he turned his attention to the other heads that were now swarming thickly up the hillside. None made the slightest sign of recognition. One or two, indeed, came close to his head, and almost followed the example of the first, but he dodged convulsively out of the way. Upon most of them 
he saw the same expression of unavailing regret he had seen upon the first and heard the same faint sounds of wretchedness from them one or two wept and one rolling swiftly uphill wore an expression of diabolical rage but others were cold and several had a look of gratified interest in their eyes one at least was almost in an ecstasy of happiness Platner does not remember that he recognized any more likenesses in those he saw at this time for several hours perhaps Platner watched these strange things dispersing themselves over the hills and not till long after they had ceased to issue from the clustering black buildings in the gorge did he resume his downward climb the darkness about him increased so much that he had a difficulty in stepping true overhead the sky was now a bright pale green he felt neither hunger nor thirst later when he did he found a chilly stream running down the centre of the gorge and the rare moss upon the boulders when he tried it at last in desperation was good to eat he groped about among the tombs that ran down the gorge seeking vaguely for some clue to these inexplicable things after a long time he came to the entrance of the big mausoleum-like building from which the heads had issued in this he found a group of green lights burning upon a kind of basaltic altar and a bell-rope from a belfry overhead hanging down into the centre of the place round the wall ran a lettering of fire in a character unknown to him while he was still wondering at the purport of these things he heard the receding tramp of heavy feet echoing far down the street he ran out into the darkness again but he could see nothing he had a mind to pull the bell-rope and finally decided to follow the footsteps but although he ran far he never overtook them and his shouting was of no avail the gorge seemed to extend an interminable distance it was as dark as earthly starlight throughout its length while the ghastly green day lay along the upper edge of its precipices there were none of the heads now below they were all it seemed busily occupied along the upper slopes looking up he saw them drifting hither and thither some hovering stationary some flying swiftly through the air it reminded him he said of big snowflakes only these were black and pale green in pursuing the firm undeviating footsteps that he never overtook in groping into new regions of this endless devil's dyke in clambering up and down the pitiless heights in wandering about the summits and in watching the drifting faces Platner states that he spent the better part of seven or eight days he did not keep count he says though once or twice he found eyes watching him he had word with no living soul he slept among the rocks on the hillside in the gorge things earthly were invisible because from the earthly standpoint it was far underground on the altitudes so soon as the earthly day began the world became visible to him he found himself sometimes stumbling over the dark green rocks or arresting himself on a precipitous brink while all about him the green branches of the sussexville lanes 
were swaying. Or again he seemed to be walking through the Sussexville streets, or watching unseen the private business of some household. And then it was, he discovered, that to almost every human being in our world there pertained some of these drifting heads, that every one in the world is watched intermittently by these helpless disembodiments. What are they, these watchers of the living? Platner never learned. But two that presently found and followed him were like his childhood's memory of his father and mother. Now and then other faces turned their eyes upon him, eyes like those of dead people who had swayed him or injured him or helped him in his youth and manhood. Whenever they looked at him, Platner was overcome with a strange sense of responsibility. To his mother he ventured to speak, but she made no answer. She looked sadly, steadfastly, and tenderly, a little reproachfully, too, it seemed, into his eyes. He simply tells this story. He does not endeavour to explain. We are left to surmise who these watchers of the living may be, or, if they are indeed the dead, why they should so closely and passionately watch a world they have left for ever. It may be, indeed to my mind it seems just, that when our life has closed, when evil or good is no longer a choice for us, we may still have to witness the working out of the train of consequences we have laid. If human souls continue after death, then surely human interests continue after death. But that is merely my own guess at the meaning of the things seen. Platner offers no interpretation, for none was given him. It is well the reader should understand this clearly. Day after day, with his head reeling, he wandered about this strange, lit world outside the world, weary and, towards the end, weak and hungry. By day, by our earthly day, that is, the ghostly vision of the old familiar scenery of Sussexville all about him irked and worried him. He could not see where to put his feet, and ever and again, with a chilly touch, one of these watching souls would come against his face, and after dark the multitude of those watchers about him, and their intent distress, confused his mind beyond describing. A great longing to return to the earthly life that was so near and yet so remote consumed him. The unearthliness of things about him produced a positively painful mental distress. He was worried beyond describing by his own particular followers. He would shout at them to desist from staring at him, scold at them, hurry away from them. They were always mute and intent. Run as he might over the uneven ground, they followed his destinies. On the ninth day, towards evening, Platner heard the invisible footsteps approaching, far away down the gorge. He was then wandering over the broad crest of the same hill upon which he had fallen in his entry into this strange other world of his. He turned to hurry down into the gorge, feeling his way hastily, and was arrested by the sight of the thing that was happening in a room in a back street near the school. Both of the people in the room he knew by sight. The windows were open, the blinds up, 
and the setting sun shone clearly into it so that it came out quite brightly at first a vivid oblong of room lying like a magic lantern picture upon the black landscape and the vivid green dawn in addition to the sunlight a candle had just been lit in the room on the bed lay a lank man his ghastly white face terrible upon the tumbled pillow his clenched hands were raised above his head a little table beside the bed carried a few medicine bottles some toast and water and an empty glass every now and then the lank man's lips fell apart to indicate a word he could not articulate but the woman did not notice that he wanted anything because she was busy turning out papers from an old-fashioned bureau in the opposite corner of the room at first the picture was very vivid indeed but as the green dawn behind it grew brighter and brighter so it became fainter and more transparent as the echoing footsteps paced nearer and nearer those footsteps that sound so loud in that other world and come so silently in this platner perceived about him a great multitude of dim faces gathering together out of the darkness and watching the two people in the room never before had he seen so many of the watchers of the living a multitude had eyes only for the sufferer in the room another multitude in infinite anguish watched the woman as she hunted with greedy eyes for something she could not find they crowded about platner they came across his sight and buffeted his face the noise of their unavailing regrets was all about him he saw clearly only now and then at other times the picture quivered dimly through the veil of green reflections upon their movements in the room it must have been very still and platner says the candle flame streamed up into a perfect vertical line of smoke but in his ears each footfall and its echoes beat like a clap of thunder and the faces too more particularly near the woman's one a woman's also white and clear-featured a face which might have once been cold and hard but which was now softened by the touch of a wisdom strange to earth the other might have been the woman's father both were evidently absorbed in the contemplation of some act of hateful meanness so it seemed which they could no longer guard against and prevent behind were others teachers it may be who had taught ill friends whose influence had failed and over the man too a multitude but none that seemed to be parents or teachers faces that might once have been coarse now purged to strength by sorrow and in the forefront one face a girlish one neither angry nor remorseful but merely patient and weary and as it seemed to platner waiting for relief his powers of description failed him at the memory of this multitude of ghastly countenances they gathered on the stroke of the bell he saw them all in the space of a second it would seem that he was so worked on by his excitement that quite involuntarily his restless fingers took the bottle of green powder out of his pocket and held it before him but he does not remember that abruptly the footsteps ceased he waited for the next and there was silence and then suddenly cutting through the unexpected stillness like a keen thin blade 
came the first stroke of the bell at that the multitudinous faces swayed to and fro and a louder crying began all about him the woman did not hear she was burning something now in the candle flame at the second stroke everything grew dim and a breath of wind icy cold blew through the host of watchers they swirled about him like an eddy of dead leaves in the spring and at the third stroke something was extended through them to the bed you have heard of a beam of light this was like a beam of darkness and looking again at it platna saw that it was a shadowy arm and hand the green sun was now topping the black desolations of the horizon and the vision of the room was very faint platna could see that the white of the bed struggled and was convulsed and that the woman looked round over her shoulder at it startled the cloud of watchers lifted high like a puff of green dust before the wind and swept swiftly downwards towards the temple in the gorge then suddenly platna understood the meaning of the shadowy black arm that stretched across his shoulder and clutched its prey he did not dare turn his head to see the shadow behind the arm with a violent effort and covering his eyes he set himself to run made perhaps twenty strides then slipped on a boulder and fell he fell forward on his hands and the bottle smashed and exploded as he touched the ground in another moment he found himself stunned and bleeding sitting face to face with Lidget in the old walled garden behind the school there the story of platner's experiences ends i have resisted i believe successfully the natural disposition of a writer of fiction to dress up incidents of this sort i have told the thing as far as possible in the order in which platner told it to me i have carefully avoided any attempt at style effect or construction it would have been easy for instance to have worked the scene of the deathbed into a kind of plot in which platna might have been involved but apart from the objectionableness of falsifying a most extraordinary true story any such trite devices would spoil to my mind the peculiar effect of this dark world with its livid green illumination and its drifting watchers of the living which unseen and unapproachable to us is yet lying all about us it remains to add that a death did actually occur in vincent terrace just beyond the school garden and so far as can be proved at the moment of platner's return deceased was a rate collector and insurance agent his widow who was much younger than himself married last month a mr whimper a veterinary surgeon of all bleeding as the portion of this story given here has in various forms circulated orally in sussexville she has consented to my use of her name on condition that i make it distinctly known that she emphatically contradicts every detail of platner's account of her husband's last moments she burnt no will she says although platner never accused her of doing so her husband made but one will and that just after their marriage 
Certainly, from a man who had never seen it, Plackner's account of the furniture of the room was curiously accurate. One other thing, even at the risk of an irksome repetition, I must insist upon, lest I seem to favour the credulous, superstitious view. Plattner's absence from the world for nine days is, I think, proved, but that does not prove his story. It is quite conceivable that, even outside space, hallucinations may be possible. That, at least, the reader must bear distinctly in mind. End of section 15section sixteen of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley the red room i can assure you said i that it will take a very tangible ghost to frighten me and i stood up before the fire with my glass in my hand it is your own choosing said the man with the withered arm and glanced at me askance eight and twenty years said i i have lived and never a ghost have i seen as yet the old woman sat staring hard into the fire her pale eyes wide open ay she broke in and eight and twenty years you have lived and never seen the likes of this house i reckon there's a many things to see when one's still but eight and twenty she swayed her head slowly from side to side a many things to see and sorrow for i half suspected the old people were trying to enhance the spiritual terrors of their house by their droning insistence i put down my empty glass on the table and looked about the room and caught a glimpse of myself abbreviated and broadened to an impossible sturdiness in the queer old mirror at the end of the room well i said if i see anything to-night i shall be so much the wiser for i come to the business with an open mind it's your own choosing said the man with the withered arm once more i heard the sound of a stick and a shambling step on the flags in the passage outside and the door creaked on its hinges as a second old man entered more bent more wrinkled more aged even than the first he supported himself by a single crutch his eyes were covered by a shade and his lower lip half averted hung pale and pink from his decaying yellow teeth he made straight for an armchair on the opposite side of the table sat down clumsily and began to cough the man with the withered arm gave this newcomer a short glance of positive dislike the old woman took no notice of his arrival but remained with her eyes fixed steadily on the fire i said it's your own choosing said the man with the withered arm when the coughing had ceased for a while it's my own choosing i answered the man with the shade became aware of my presence for the first time and threw his head back for a moment and sideways to see me i caught a momentary glimpse of his eyes small and bright and inflamed then he began to cough and splutter again why don't you drink said the man with the withered arm pushing the beer towards him the man with the shade poured out a glassful with a shaky hand that splashed half as much again on the deal table a monstrous shadow of him crouched upon the wall and mocked his action as he poured and drank 
i must confess i had scarce expected these grotesque custodians there is to my mind something inhuman in senility something crouching and atavistic the human qualities seem to drop from old people insensibly day by day the three of them made me feel uncomfortable with their gaunt silences their bent carriage their evident unfriendliness to me and to one another if said i you will show me to this haunted room of yours i will make myself comfortable there the old man with the cough jerked his head back so suddenly that it startled me and shot another glance of his red eyes at me from under the shade but no one answered me i waited a minute glancing from one to the other if i said a little louder you will show me to this haunted room of yours i will relieve you from the task of entertaining me there's a candle on the slab outside the door said the man with the withered arm looking at my feet as he addressed me but if you go to the red room to-night this night of all nights said the old woman you go alone very well i answered and which way do i go you go along the passage for a bit said he until you come to a door and through that is a spiral staircase and halfway up that is a landing and another door covered with bays go through that and down the long corridor to the end and the red room is on your left up the steps have i got that right i said and repeated his directions he corrected me in one particular and are you really going said the man with the shade looking at me again for the third time with that queer unnatural tilting of the face this night of all nights said the old woman it is what i came for i said and moved towards the door as i did so the old man with the shade rose and staggered round the table so as to be closer to the others and to the fire at the door i turned and looked at them and saw they were all close together dark against the firelight staring at me over their shoulders with an intent expression on their ancient faces good night i said setting the door open it's your own choosing said the man with the withered arm i left the door wide open until the candle was well alight and then i shut them in and walked down the chilly echoing passage i must confess that the oddness of these three old pensioners in whose charge her ladyship had left the castle and the deep-toned old-fashioned furniture of the housekeeper's room in which they foregathered affected me in spite of my efforts to keep myself at a matter-of-fact phase they seemed to belong to another age an older age an age when things spiritual were different from this of ours less certain an age when omens and witches were credible and ghosts beyond denying their very existence was spectral the cut of their clothing fashions born in dead brains the ornaments and conveniences of the room about them were ghostly the thoughts of vanished men which still haunted rather than participated in the world of to-day but with an effort i sent such thoughts to the right about the long draughty subterranean passage was chilly and dusty and my candle flared and made the shadows cower and quiver the echoes ran up and down the spiral staircase 
and a shadow came sweeping up after me and one fled before me into the darkness overhead i came to the landing and stopped there for a moment listening to a rustling that i fancied i heard then satisfied of the absolute silence i pushed open the baize-covered door and stood in the corridor the effect was scarcely what i expected for the moonlight coming in by the great window on the grand staircase picked out everything in vivid black shadow or silvery illumination everything was in its place the house might have been deserted on the yesterday instead of eighteen months ago there were candles in the sockets of the sconces and whatever dust had gathered on the carpets or upon the polished flooring was distributed so evenly as to be invisible in the moonlight i was about to advance and stopped abruptly a bronze group stood upon the landing hidden from me by the corner of the wall but its shadow fell with marvellous distinctness upon the white panelling and gave me the impression of someone crouching to waylay me i stood rigid for half a minute perhaps then with my hand in the pocket that held my revolver i advanced only to discover a ganymede and eagle glistening in the moonlight that incident for a time restored my nerve and a porcelain chinaman on a boule table whose head rocked silently as i passed him scarcely startled me the door to the red room and the stairs up to it were in a shadowy corner i moved my candle from side to side in order to see clearly the nature of the recess in which i stood before opening the door here it was thought i that my predecessor was found and the memory of that story gave me a sudden twinge of apprehension i glanced over my shoulder at the ganymede in the moonlight and opened the door of the red room rather hastily with my face half turned to the pallid silence of the landing i entered closed the door behind me at once turned the key i found in the lock within and stood with the candle held aloft surveying the scene of my vigil the great red room of lorraine castle in which the young duke had died or rather in which he had begun his dying for he had opened the door and fallen headlong down the steps i had just ascended that had been the end of his vigil of his gallant attempt to conquer the ghostly tradition of the place and never i thought had apoplexy better served the ends of superstition and there were other and older stories that clung to the room back to the half credible beginning of it all the tale of a timid wife and the tragic end that came to her husband's jest of frightening her and looking around that large sombre room with its shadowy window bays its recesses and alcoves one could well understand the legends that had sprouted in its black corners its germinating darkness my candle was a little tongue of light in its vastness that failed to pierce the opposite end of the room and left an ocean of mystery and suggestion beyond its island of light i resolved to make a systematic examination of the place at once and dispel the fanciful suggestions of its obscurity before they obtained a hold upon me after satisfying myself of the fastening of the door i began to walk about the room peering round each article of furniture tucking up the valances of the bed and opening its curtains wide 
i pulled up the blinds and examined the fastenings of the several windows before closing the shutters leant forward and looked up at the blackness of the wide chimney and tapped the dark oak panelling for any secret opening there were two big mirrors in the room each with a pair of sconces bearing candles and on the mantelshelf too were more candles in china candlesticks all these i lit one after the other the fire was laid an unexpected consideration from the old housekeeper and i lit it to keep down any disposition to shiver and when it was burning well i stood round with my back to it and regarded the room again i had pulled up a chintz-covered armchair and a table to form a kind of barricade before me and on this lay my revolver ready to hand my precise examination had done me good but i still found the remoter darkness of the place and its perfect stillness too stimulating for the imagination the echoing of the stir and crackling of the fire was no sort of comfort to me the shadow in the alcove at the end in particular had that undefinable quality of a presence that odd suggestion of a lurking living thing that comes so easily in silence and solitude at last to reassure myself i walked with a candle into it and satisfied myself that there was nothing tangible there i stood that candle upon the floor of the alcove and left it in that position by this time i was in a state of considerable nervous tension although to my reason there was no adequate cause for the condition my mind however was perfectly clear i postulated quite unreservedly that nothing supernatural could happen and to pass the time i began to string some rhymes together ingoldsby fashion of the original legend of the place a few i spoke aloud but the echoes were not pleasant for the same reason i also abandoned after a time a conversation with myself upon the impossibility of ghosts and haunting my mind reverted to the three old and distorted people downstairs and i tried to keep it upon that topic the sombre reds and blacks of the room troubled me even with seven candles the place was merely dim the one in the alcove flared in a draught and the fire flickering kept the shadows and penumbra perpetually shifting and stirring casting about for a remedy i recalled the candles i had seen in the passage and with a slight effort walked out into the moonlight carrying a candle and leaving the door open and presently returned with as many as ten these i put in various knick-knacks of china with which the room was sparsely adorned lit and placed where the shadows had lain deepest some on the floor some in the window recesses until at last my seventeen candles were so arranged that not an inch of the room but had the direct light of at least one of them it occurred to me that when the ghost came i could warn him not to trip over them the room was now quite brightly illuminated there was something very cheery and reassuring in these little streaming flames and snuffing them gave me an occupation and afforded a helpful sense of the passage of time even with that however the brooding expectation of the vigil weighed heavily upon me it was after midnight that the candle in the alcove suddenly went out and the black shadow sprang back to its place there 
i did not see the candle go out i simply turned and saw that the darkness was there as one might start and see the unexpected presence of a stranger by jove said i aloud that draught's a strong one and taking the matches from the table i walked across the room in a leisurely manner to relight the corner again my first match would not strike and as i succeeded with the second something seemed to blink on the wall before me i turned my head involuntarily and saw that the two candles on the little table by the fireplace were extinguished i rose at once to my feet odd i said did i do that myself in a flash of absent-mindedness i walked back relit one and as i did so i saw the candle in the right sconce of one of the mirrors wink and go right out and almost immediately its companion followed it there was no mistake about it the flame vanished as if the wicks had been suddenly nipped between a finger and a thumb leaving the wick neither glowing nor smoking but black while i stood gaping the candle at the foot of the bed went out and the shadows seemed to take another step towards me this won't do said i and first one and then another candle on the mantel-shelf followed what's up i cried with a queer high note getting into my voice somehow at that the candle on the wardrobe went out and the one i had relit in the alcove followed steady on i said these candles are wanted speaking with a half hysterical facetiousness and scratching away at a match the while for the mantel candlesticks my hands trembled so much that twice i missed the rough paper of the matchbox as the mantel emerged from darkness again two candles in the remoter end of the window were eclipsed but with the same match i also relit the larger mirror candles and those on the floor near the doorway so that for the moment i seemed to gain on the extinctions but then in a volley there vanished four lights at once in different corners of the room and i struck another match in quivering haste and stood hesitating whither to take it as i stood undecided an invisible hand seemed to sweep out the two candles on the table with a cry of terror i dashed at the alcove then into the corner and then into the window relighting three as two more vanished by the fireplace then perceiving a better way i dropped the matches on the iron-bound deed-box in the corner and caught up the bedroom candlestick with this i avoided the delay of striking matches but for all that the steady process of extinction went on and the shadows i feared and fought against returned and crept in upon me first a step gained on this side of me and then on that it was like a ragged storm cloud sweeping out the stars now and then one returned for a minute and was lost again i was now almost frantic with the horror of the coming darkness and my self-possession deserted me i leapt panting and dishevelled from candle to candle in a vain struggle against that remorseless advance i bruised myself on the thigh against the table i sent a chair headlong i stumbled and fell and whisked the cloth from the table in my fall my candle rolled away from me and i snatched another as i rose abruptly this was blown out as i swung it off the table by the wind of my sudden movement and immediately the two remaining candles followed but there was light still in the room a red light that staved off the shadows from me the fire 
of course i could still thrust my candle between the bars and relight it i turned to where the flames were still dancing between the glowing coals and splashing red reflections upon the furniture made two steps towards the grate and incontinently the flames dwindled and vanished the glow vanished the reflections rushed together and vanished and as i thrust the candle between the bars darkness closed about me like the shutting of an eye wrapped about me in a stifling embrace sealed my vision and crushed the last vestiges of reason from my brain the candle fell from my hand i flung out my arms in a vain effort to thrust that ponderous blackness away from me and lifting up my voice screamed with all my might once twice thrice then i think i must have staggered to my feet i know i thought suddenly of the moonlit corridor and with my head bowed and my arms over my face made a run for the door but i had forgotten the exact position of the door and struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed i staggered back turned and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furniture i have a vague memory of battering myself thus to and fro in the darkness of a cramped struggle and of my own wild crying as i darted to and fro of a heavy blow at last upon my forehead a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age of my last frantic effort to keep my footing and then i remember no more i opened my eyes in daylight my head was roughly bandaged and the man with the withered arm was watching my face i looked about me trying to remember what had happened and for a space i could not recollect i rolled my eyes into the corner and saw the old woman no longer abstracted pouring out some drops of medicine from a little blue vial into a glass where am i i asked i seem to remember you and yet i cannot remember who you are they told me then and i heard of the haunted red room as one who hears a tale we found you at dawn said he and there was blood on your forehead and lips it was very slowly i recovered my memory of my experience you believe now said the old man that the room is haunted he spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder but as one who grieves for a broken friend yes said i the room is haunted and you have seen it and we who have lived here all our lives have never set eyes upon it because we have never dared tell us is it truly the old earl who no said i it is not i told you so said the old lady with the glass in her hand it is his poor young countess who was frightened it is not i said there is neither ghost of earl nor ghost of countess in that room there is no ghost there at all but worse far worse well they said the worst of all the things that haunt poor mortal man said i and that is in all its nakedness fear that will not have light nor sound that will not bear with reason that deafens and darkens and overwhelms it followed me through the corridor it fought against me in the room i stopped abruptly there was an interval of silence 
my hand went up to my bandages then the man with the shade sighed and spoke that is it said he i knew that was it a power of darkness to put such a curse upon a woman it lurks there always you can feel it even in the daytime even of a bright summer's day in the hangings in the curtains keeping behind you however you face about in the dusk it creeps along the corridor and follows you so that you dare not turn there is fear in that room of hers black fear and there will be so long as this house of sin endures end of section 16section seventeen of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley the purple pileus mr coombs was sick of life he walked away from his unhappy home and sick not only of his own existence but of everybody else's turned aside down gaswork lane to avoid the town and crossing the wooden bridge that goes over the canal to starling's cottages was presently alone in the damp pine woods and out of sight and sound of human habitation he would stand it no longer he repeated aloud with blasphemies unusual to him that he would stand it no longer he was a pale-faced little man with dark eyes and a fine and very black moustache he had a very stiff upright collar slightly frayed that gave him an illusory double chin and his overcoat albeit shabby was trimmed with astrakhan his gloves were a bright brown with black stripes over the knuckles and split at the finger ends his appearance his wife had said once in the dear dead days beyond recall before he married her that is was military but now she called him it seems a dreadful thing to tell of between husband and wife but she called him a little grub it wasn't the only thing she had called him either the row had arisen about that beastly jenny again jenny was his wife's friend and by no invitation of mr coombs she came in every blessed sunday to dinner and made a shindy all the afternoon she was a big noisy girl with a taste for loud colours and a strident laugh and this sunday she had outdone all her previous intrusions by bringing in a fellow with her a chap as showy as herself and mr coombs in a starchy clean collar and his sunday frock-coat had sat dumb and wrathful at his own table while his wife and her guests talked foolishly and undesirably and laughed aloud well he stood that and after dinner which as usual was late what must miss jenny do but go to the piano and play banjo tunes for all the world as if it were a weekday flesh and blood could not endure such goings-on they would hear next door they would hear in the road it was a public announcement of their disrepute he had to speak he had felt himself go pale and a kind of rigour had affected his respiration as he delivered himself he had been sitting on one of the chairs by the window the new guest had taken possession of the armchair he turned his head sunday he said over the collar in the voice of one who warns 
Sunday, what people call a nasty tone it was. Jenny had kept on playing, but his wife, who was looking through some music that was piled on the top of the piano, had stared at him. What's wrong now? she said. Can't people enjoy themselves? I don't mind rational enjoyment at all, said little Coombs, but I ain't a-going to have weekday tunes playing on a Sunday in this house. What's wrong with my playing now? said Jenny, stopping and twirling round on the music-stool with a monstrous rustle of flounces. Coombs saw it was going to be a row, and opened too vigorously, as is common with your timid, nervous men all the world over. "'Steady on with that music-stall,' said he. "'It ain't made for heavyweights.' "'Never you mind about weights,' said Jenny, incensed. "'What was you saying behind my back about my playing?' "'Surely you don't hold with not having a bit of music on a Sunday, Mr. Coombs,' said the new guest, leaning back in the armchair, blowing a cloud of cigarette-smoke, and smiling in a kind of pitying way, and simultaneously his wife said something to Jenny about, "'Never mind him. You go on, Jinny.' "'I do,' said Mr. Coombs, addressing the new guest. "'May I ask why?' said the new guest, evidently enjoying both his cigarette and the prospect of an argument. He was, by the by, a lank young man, very stylishly dressed in bright drab, with a white cravat and a pearl and silver pin. It had been better taste to come in a black coat, Mr. Coombs thought. Because, began Mr. Coombs, it don't suit me. I'm a business man. I have to study my connection. Rational enjoyment. His connection, said Mrs. Coombs scornfully. That's what he's always a saying. We got to do this and we got to do that. If you don't mean to study my connection, said Mr. Coombs, what did you marry me for? "'I wonder,' said Jenny, and turned back to the piano. "'I never saw such a man as you,' said Mrs. Coombs. "'You've altered all round since we were married. Before—' Then Jenny began at the turn, turn, turn again. "'Look here,' said Mr. Coombs, driven at last to revolt, standing up and raising his voice. "'I tell you I won't have that!' The frock-coat heaved with his indignation. "'No violence now,' said the long young man in drab, sitting up. "'Who the deuce are you?' said Mr. Coombs fiercely. Whereupon they all began talking at once. The new guest said he was Jenny's intended, and meant to protect her, and Mr. Coombs said he was welcome to do so anywhere but in his, Mr. Coombs's, house, and Mrs. Coombs said he ought to be ashamed of insulting his guests, and, as I have already mentioned, that he was getting a regular little grub, and the end was that Mr. Coombs ordered his visitors out of the house, and they wouldn't go, and so he said he would go himself. With his face burning and tears of excitement in his eyes, he went into the passage, and as he struggled with his overcoat, his frock-coat sleeves got concertinaed up his arm, and gave a brush at his silk hat, Jenny began again at the piano, and strummed him insultingly out of the house. Turn, turn, turn. He slammed the shop door so that the house quivered. That, briefly, was the immediate making of his mood. You will perhaps begin to understand his disgust with existence. 
as he walked along the muddy path under the firs it was late october and the ditches and heaps of fir needles were gorgeous with clumps of fungi he recapitulated the melancholy history of his marriage it was brief and commonplace enough he now perceived with sufficient clearness that his wife had married him out of a natural curiosity and in order to escape from her worrying laborious and uncertain life in the workroom and like the majority of her class she was far too stupid to realize that it was her duty to cooperate with him in his business she was greedy of enjoyment loquacious and socially minded and evidently disappointed to find the restraints of poverty still hanging about her his worries exasperated her and the slightest attempt to control her proceedings resulted in a charge of grumbling why couldn't he be nice as he used to be and coombs was such a harmless little man too nourished mentally on self-help and with a meagre ambition of self-denial and competition that was to end in a sufficiency then jenny came in as a female mephistopheles a gabbling chronicle of fellers and was always wanting his wife to go to theatres and all that and in addition were aunts of his wife and cousins male and female to eat up capital insult him personally upset business arrangements annoy good customers and generally blight his life it was not the first occasion by many that mr coombs had fled his home in wrath and indignation and something like fear vowing furiously and even aloud that he wouldn't stand it and so frothing away his energy along the line of least resistance but never before had he been quite so sick of life as on this particular sunday afternoon the sunday dinner may have had its share in his despair and the greyness of the sky perhaps too he was beginning to realize his unendurable frustration as a business man as the consequence of his marriage presently bankruptcy and after that perhaps she might have reason to repent when it was too late and destiny as i have already intimated had planted the path through the wood with evil-smelling fungi thickly and variously planted it not only on the right side but on the left a small shopman is in such a melancholy position if his wife turns out a disloyal partner his capital is all tied up in his business and to leave her means to join the unemployed in some strange part of the earth the luxuries of divorce are beyond him altogether so that the good old tradition of marriage for better or worse holds inexorably for him and things work up to tragic culminations bricklayers kick their wives to death and dukes betray theirs but it is among the small clerks and shopkeepers nowadays that it comes most often to a cutting of throats under the circumstances it is not so very remarkable and you must take it as charitably as you can that the mind of mr coombs ran for a while on some such glorious close to his disappointed hopes and that he thought of razors pistols bread-knives and touching letters to the coroner denouncing his enemies by name 
and praying piously for forgiveness after a time his fierceness gave way to melancholia he had been married in this very overcoat in his first and only frock-coat that was buttoned up beneath it he began to recall their courting along this very walk his years of penurious saving to get capital and the bright hopefulness of his marrying days for it all to work out like this was there no sympathetic ruler anywhere in the world he reverted to death as a topic he thought of the canal he had just crossed and doubted whether he shouldn't stand with his head out even in the middle and it was while drowning was in his mind that the purple pileus caught his eye he looked at it mechanically for a moment and stopped and stooped towards it to pick it up under the impression that it was some such small leather object as a purse then he saw that it was the purple top of a fungus a peculiarly poisonous-looking purple slimy shiny and emitting a sour odour he hesitated with his hand an inch or so from it and the thought of poison crossed his mind with that he picked the thing and stood up again with it in his hand the odour was certainly strong acrid but by no means disgusting he broke off a piece and the fresh surface was a creamy white that changed like magic in the space of ten seconds to a yellowish-green colour it was even an inviting-looking change he broke off two other pieces to see it repeated they were wonderful things these fungi thought mr coombs and all of them the deadliest poisons as his father had often told him deadly poisons there is no time like the present for a rash resolve why not here and now thought mr coombs he tasted a little piece a very little piece indeed a mere crumb it was so pungent that he almost spat it out again then merely hot and full-flavoured a kind of german mustard with a touch of horseradish and well mushroom he swallowed it in the excitement of the moment did he like it or did he not his mind was curiously careless he would try another bit it really wasn't bad it was good he forgot his troubles in the interest of the immediate moment playing with death it was he took another bite and then deliberately finished a mouthful a curious tingling sensation began in his fingertips and toes his pulse began to move faster the blood in his ears sounded like a mill-race try a bit more said mr coombs he turned and looked about him and found his feet unsteady he saw and struggled towards a little patch of purple a dozen yards away jolly stuff said mr coombs e not more here he pitched forward and fell on his face his hands outstretched towards the cluster of pilei but he did not eat any more of them he forgot forthwith he rolled over and sat up with a look of astonishment on his face his carefully brushed silk hat had rolled away towards the ditch he pressed his hand to his brow something had happened but he could not rightly determine what it was anyhow he was no longer dull he felt bright cheerful and his throat was afire he laughed in the sudden gaiety of his heart had he been dull 
he did not know but at any rate he would be dull no longer he got up and stood unsteadily regarding the universe with an agreeable smile he began to remember he could not remember very well because of a steam roundabout that was beginning in his head and he knew he had been disagreeable at home just because they wanted to be happy they were quite right life should be as gay as possible he would go home and make it up and reassure them and why not take some of this delightful toadstool with him for them to eat a hatful no less some of those red ones with white spots as well and a few yellow he had been a dull dog an enemy to merriment he would make up for it it would be gay to turn his coat sleeves inside out and stick some yellow gorse into his waistcoat pockets then home singing for a jolly evening after the departure of mr coombs jenny discontinued playing and turned round on the music-stool again what a fuss about nothing said jenny you see mr clarence what i've got to put up with said mrs coombs he is a bit hasty said mr clarence judicially he ain't got the slightest sense of our position said mrs coombs that's what i complain of he cares for nothing but his old shop and if i have a bit of company or buy anything to keep myself decent or get any little thing i want out of the housekeeping money there's disagreeables economy he says struggle for life and all that he lies awake of nights about it worrying how he can screw me out of a shilling he wanted us to eat dorset butter once if once i was to give in to him there of course said jenny if a man values a woman said mr clarence lounging back in the armchair he must be prepared to make sacrifices for her for my own part said mr clarence with his eye on jenny i shouldn't think of marrying till i was in a position to do the thing in style it's downright selfishness a man ought to go through the rough and tumble by himself and not drag her i don't agree altogether with that said jenny i don't see why a man shouldn't have a woman's help provided he doesn't treat her meanly you know it's meanness you wouldn't believe said mrs coombs but i was a fool to have him i might have known if it hadn't been for my father we shouldn't have had not a carriage to our wedding lord he didn't stick out at that said mr clarence quite shocked said he wanted the money for his stock or some such rubbish why he wouldn't have a woman in to help me once a week if it wasn't for my standing out plucky and the fusses he makes about money comes to me well pretty near crying with sheets of paper and figures if only we can tide over this year he says the business is bound to go if only we can tide over this year i says then it will be if only we can tide over next year i know you i says and you don't catch me screwing myself lean and ugly why didn't you marry a slavey i says if you wanted one instead of a respectable girl i says so mrs coombs but we will not follow this unedifying conversation further suffice it that mr coombs was very satisfactorily disposed of and they had a snug little time round the fire then mrs coombs went to get the tea and jenny sat coquettishly on the arm of mr clarence's chair until the tea-things clattered outside what was that i heard asked mrs coombs playfully as she entered and there was badinage about kissing they were just sitting down to the little circular table 
when the first intimation of Mr. Coombs's return was heard. This was a fumbling at the latch of the front door. "'Here's my lord,' said Mrs. Coombs. "'Went out like a lion and comes back like a lamb, I'll lay.' Something fell over in the shop. A chair, it sounded like. Then there was a sound as of some complicated step exercise in the passage. Then the door opened, and Coombs appeared. But it was Coombs transfigured. The immaculate collar had been torn carelessly from his throat. His carefully brushed silk hat, half full of a crush of fungi, was under one arm. His coat was inside out, and his waistcoat adorned with bunches of yellow-blossomed furs. These little eccentricities of sunday costume however were quite overshadowed by the change in his face it was livid white his eyes were unnaturally large and bright and his pale blue lips were drawn back in a cheerless grin merry he said he had stopped dancing to open the door rational enjoyment dance he made three fantastic steps into the room and stood bowing jim shrieked mrs coombs and mr clarence sat petrified with a dropping lower jaw tea said mr coombs joel thing tea toastals too brusher he's drunk said jenny in a weak voice never before had she seen this intense pallor in a drunken man or such shining dilated eyes mr coombs held out a handful of scarlet agaric to mr clarence joe stuff said he taste some at that moment he was genial then at the sight of their startled faces he changed with the swift transition of insanity into overbearing fury and it seemed as if he had suddenly recalled the quarrel of his departure in such a huge voice as mrs coombs had never heard before he shouted my house i'm master here eat what i give you he bawled this as it seemed without an effort without a violent gesture standing there as motionless as one who whispers holding out a handful of fungus clarence approved himself a coward he could not meet the mad fury in coombs's eyes he rose to his feet pushing back his chair and turned stooping at that coombs rushed at him jenny saw her opportunity and with the ghost of a shriek made for the door mrs coombs followed her clarence tried to dodge over went the tea-table with a smash as coombs clutched him by the collar and tried to thrust the fungus into his mouth clarence was content to leave his collar behind him and shot out into the passage with red patches of flyer garrick still adherent to his face shut him in cried mrs coombs and would have closed the door but her supports deserted her jenny saw the shop door open and vanished thereby locking it behind her while clarence went on hastily into the kitchen mr coombs came heavily against the door and mrs coombs finding the key was inside fled upstairs and locked herself in the spare bedroom so the new convert to joie de vivre emerged upon the passage his decorations a little scattered but that respectable hatful of fungi still under his arms he hesitated at the three ways and decided on the kitchen whereupon clarence who was fumbling with the key gave up the attempt to imprison his host and fled into the scullery only to be captured before he could open the door into the yard 
Mr. Clarence is singularly reticent of the details of what occurred. It seems that Mr. Coombs's transitory irritation had vanished again, and he was once more a genial playfellow. And as there were knives and meat-choppers about, Clarence very generously resolved to humour him, and so avoid anything tragic. It is beyond dispute that Mr. Coombs played with Mr. Clarence to his heart's content. They could not have been more playful and familiar if they had known each other for years. He insisted gaily on Clarence trying the fungi, and after a friendly tussle was smitten with remorse at the mess he was making of his guest's face. It also appears that Clarence was dragged under the sink, and his face scrubbed with the blacking-brush. He being still resolved to humour the lunatic at any cost, and that, finally, in a somewhat dishevelled, chipped, and discoloured condition, he was assisted to his coat, and shown out by the back door, the shopway being barred by Jenny. Mr. Coombs's wandering thoughts then turned to Jenny. Jenny had been unable to unfasten the shop door, but she shot the bolts against Mr. Coombs's latch-key, and remained in possession of the shop for the rest of the evening. It would appear that Mr. Coombs then returned to the kitchen, still in pursuit of gaiety, and, albeit a strict good templar, drank, or spilt down the front of the first and only frock-coat, no less than five bottles of the stout Mrs. Coombs insisted upon having for her health's sake. He made cheerful noises by breaking off the necks of the bottles, with several of his wife's wedding-present dinner-plates and during the earlier part of this great drunk he sang diverse merry ballads. He cut his finger rather badly with one of the bottles, the only bloodshed in this story, and what with that and the systematic convulsion of his inexperienced physiology by the licorice brand of Mrs. Coombs's stout, it may be the evil of the fungus poison was somewhat allayed. But we prefer to draw a veil over the concluding incidents of this Sunday afternoon. They ended in the coal-cellar, in a deep and healing sleep. An interval of five years elapsed. Again it was a Sunday afternoon in October, and again Mr. Coombs walked through the pinewood beyond the canal. He was still the same dark-eyed, black-moustached little man that he was at the outset of the story, but his double chin was now scarcely so illusory as it had been. His overcoat was new, with a velvet lapel, and a stylish collar with turned-down corners, free of any coarse starchiness, had replaced the original all-round article. His hat was glossy, his gloves newish, though one finger had split and been carefully mended and a casual observer would have noticed about him a certain rectitude of bearing, a certain erectness of head that marks the man who thinks well of himself. He was a master now, with three assistants. Beside him walked a larger, sunburnt parody of himself, his brother Tom, just back from Australia. They were recapitulating their early struggles, and Mr. Coombs had just been making a financial statement. "'It's a very nice little business, Jim,' said Brother Tom. "'In these days of competition you're jolly lucky to have worked it up so. "'And you're jolly lucky, too, to have a wife who's willing to help like yours does. 
between ourselves said mr coombs it wasn't always so it wasn't always like this to begin with the missus was a bit giddy girls are funny creatures dear me yes you'd hardly think it but she was downright extravagant and always having slaps at me i was a bit too easy and loving and all that and she thought the whole blessed show was run for her turned the house into a regular caravansary always having her relations and girls from business in and their chaps comic songs a sunday it was getting to and driving trade away and she was making eyes at the chaps too i tell you tom the place wasn't my own shouldn't have thought it it was so well i reasoned with her i said i ain't a duke to keep a wife like a pet animal i married you for help and company i said you got to help and pull the business through she wouldn't hear of it very well i says i'm a mild man till i'm roused i says and it's getting to that but she wouldn't hear of no warnings well it's the way with women she didn't think i had it in me to be roused women of her sort between ourselves tom don't respect a man until they're a bit afraid of him so i just broke out to show her in comes a girl named jenny that used to work with her and her chap we had a bit of a row and i came out here it was just such another day as this and i thought it all out then i went back and pitched into them you did i did i was mad i can tell you i wasn't going to hit her if i could help it so i went back and licked into this chap just to show her what i could do he was a big chap too well i chucked him and smashed things about and gave her a scaring and she ran up and locked herself into the spare room well that's all i says to her the next morning now you know i says what i'm like when i'm roused and i didn't have to say anything more and you've been happy ever after eh so to speak there's nothing like putting your foot down with them if it hadn't been for that afternoon i should have been tramping the roads now and she'd have been grumbling at me and all her family grumbling for bringing her to poverty i know their little ways but we're all right now and it's a very decent little business as you say they proceeded on their way meditatively women are funny creatures said brother tom they want a firm hand says coombs what a lot of these funguses there are about here remarked brother tom presently i can't see what use they are in the world mr coombs looked i dessay they're sent for some wise purpose said mr coombs and that was as much thanks as the purple pileus ever got for maddening this absurd little man to the pitch of decisive action and so altering the whole course of his life end of section seventeen everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.